From Vintage City Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, it's the Vintage Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Greg Sanders. So 1 Corinthians 13, I want to pick back up and and reread what we looked at last week. It says, uh, first, however, let me tell you about something that is better than any of them any of them. This is how Paul will end chapter 12, and he's been talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and he says, I want to share with you something that's better than all of these gifts. If I could speak in any language in heaven or on earth, but didn't love others, I would only be making meaningless noise, like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I knew all the mysteries of the future and knew everything about everything, but didn't love others, what good would I be? And if I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move without love, that would be no good to anybody. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would be of no value whatsoever, for love is patient and kind. So I want to go back to love. Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 13 The best way to understand it is not that love is patient and kind. If we look at it in the Greek and we look at the syntax of the words, the way to understand it is honestly, love is patiently kind. There's three truths that we looked at out of these simple verses. Number one, my love matters more than my gifting. And we understand in that that there's a tendency in all of us to offer our skill set instead of our love. Secondly, love is what makes my life substantial. And it's so ironic in our culture, is it not? Because it seems that everyone would want to chase financial wealth or chase status for for that cry of substance. All of us want to be substantial. We want to live a life that's transcendent. And Paul's statement to this young Corinthian church is, it's actually love that makes your life substantial. So much so that if you don't love and you do all these other things, it'd be better that you weren't alive. Your life would be meaningless. That's an incredibly strong statement. So for us, it creates an understanding This love idea that Paul is talking about is incredibly important. The third thing we looked at as a truth in this is that love is my choice. It's not the choice of others for me. And so no one around me can make me love, nor are they responsible for my lack of love. So in our marriages, if I could just take push pause and say in our marriages, isn't it so often in our relationships, let's just make it broader, that we would want to blame our unlove on someone else's behavior pattern. And Paul's statement is, that's not accurate. Your love is your responsibility. It's your choice. No one can choose for you. So the tendency in us to want to push blame off, we have to embrace and say, no, I made the choice not to love. And we considered what love is, the word macrothumai, which is patient, is a long holding of the mind in its root form. It carries with it this clear idea dealing with anger and dealing with the willingness to endure difficulty and never lose our temper. Kind is to show oneself useful, mild, or pleasant. It's interesting, kindness is directly opposed to harshness. So I understand it this way. Anytime I feel the tendency to be harsh, whether that's with tone of voice or whether that's with the words I choose or whether that's with body language, I must understand that is not an outworking of love. John, 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. And so what Paul essentially is stating here, if we just put it into simple terms, is that 
Love, Paul states, love as a reality, not just an action. So love is a reality. That reality we understand is God. But he also states love as an action and not just a reality. So there's two ideas that he's bringing to the surface. He goes on and says, love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Now, Paul will, will give an incredible list of, of words here. This first word, jealous, can be confusing for us because we're taught that he's a jealous God. How many have ever heard that before? He's a jealous God. If we look at that word jealous in the Hebrew, the idea is he wants to draw to himself what is his. It's an idea of possession. This word jealous in the Greek is a different word. It means to be an envious or contentious rival. It means to be combative. It means to come against. The word boastful here is a self-display. Now, here's a great old English definition, employing rhetorical embellishments and extolling oneself excessively. It's a braggart. It's one that's telling you all the time how great they are. Anyone ever sat with a person like that? And you kind of, in your head, I do this once in a while, where I'll count the word I in a conversation when somebody else is using it. I don't know why. I think it's my wife's fault. But sometimes you can realize, I mean, I have had a conversation with people, had one a few days ago where I was in the middle of sharing. I was trying to engage. You know when you do that in a conversation, you want to like open up and go, okay, I'll meet you. I'll be in the middle. And the person stops and wait, wait, wait. I I hear what you're saying, but I. And they went back to their story. (laughs) I started laughing and I went, memo to self, don't do that. Um, Paul uses the word proud. It means to puff up. Now this word proud, we always take it in the sense of arrogance. The word proud in its Greek root deals with insecurity and fear. So to, to take the animal kingdom, consider what, what most of nature does. If you, The fight or flight mechanism, what do animals do? They inflate themselves, whether it's a puffer fish that makes itself giant because it wants to become less attractive to prey, or, or whether it's a bird that, that will, that will sh- spread its feathers, or whether it's a cobra that creates a hood. All of it is an effort to say, I'm scared if you get away from me. That's this word here. So we have to understand that at times our, that what Paul's saying is love doesn't have insecurity in it. The word rude here is indecent or to act unbecomingly. It is to allow internal frustrations or internal difficulties to be expressed towards others in a way that is intent on separating them from you. He says it's not demanding, self-seeking or self-focused. It's not irritable. The word means to be harsh or sharp. It is not record-keeping of wrong. This word means to calculate into memory as in a ledger, an account that has hurt or brought us injury. He says love is never glad about injustice. The word here literally means to get excited about moral wrongness. In our culture, that's a tricky one, is it not? Because we live in a culture that is having a difficult time describing what is even, and defining what is even moral wrongness. Paul says, love never rejoices, never rejoices when the truth loses, but it always rejoices when the truth wins out. The idea here in the Greek is to be neutral on truth. In other words, love is always pro-truth. Okay, I want to look at this passage on love from two lenses. 
What does it reveal about the, God, the reality of God as love? And what does it reveal about the actions of love in me? If we consider Greek culture this time, Corinth in this time, is laden with mythology. And the, the mythological gods, think about Zeus, Aphrodite, I mean, Poseidon, all these mythic, mythological gods that we've been taught about, or maybe we've seen movies that, that, that reflect who they are. They're essentially humans with supernatural powers, is the way the Greeks would, would, would see these gods. And there's, they used those supernatural powers in an abusive, punitive way. This is the concept of God that the Corinthian church has. What Paul's stepping into is to challenge their concept of who God is. Their gods were jealous and arrogant, and they did what they pleased regardless of whom it hurt. They're self-absorbed. They were irritable. People in this time lived in a constant fear of angering these gods or getting out of favor with these gods. Now, let's be clear, they were not gods. If they existed, at best, they were the demonic realm manifest. And we understand Paul teaches throughout the scriptures about the spirit realm. We have to understand whether we like it or not, whether it gives us the heebie-jeebies or not, the spirit realm's real. Just as much as we believe in the Holy Spirit, we must understand that there is a demonic realm that's been given some authority in the earth. So we don't know what these were. But what we do know is that the people walked in a belief system that gave these ideas power. And what I see Paul doing here is making a statement to them. And he's saying to this young Corinthian church the same thing I want to say to us. Our God is not made in that image. Because that's not what love is. Our God is patient and kind. And what, what Paul's doing is challenging how they approach God. And he invites them to encounter God as God defines himself. And I want to encourage us to consider the same thing. Are we allowing God to reveal himself to us or have we already fashioned an image in our minds that controls how we relate to him? That God image, we call it a bad God complex. That's what Paul's contending against here. Love is patient and kind. It's not boom, 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 boom. Does this list reveal how I should act? Yes, but we want to deal with that later. First and foremost, what it reveals is who God is and who he's not. And I want to invite us to lay down that God image we've created. Now, some of us have maybe have grown up in church. We're like, well, I know who God is. Are you sure? For some of us, there's an angry dad image. There's that father we can never make love us. We're just never good enough to invite his joy and his pleasure. For some of us, the idea of a patiently kind leader has not been something we've ever known. For too many of us, my journey 
you know, David Mitchell, one of the guys on our teaching team, we'll get to hear from him this month. We were talking through it in, in our teaching team meeting, and he's like, you know, sometimes we just have to embrace our history and say, you know what, you got me to this point. I just don't want to live with this anymore. My journey was that I've never been patiently kind with myself. Because the assumption's always been, if I let off the gas, I'll never measure up. This passage has been deeply difficult for me personally because it challenges the mechanisms I've, lear- I've learned and used to be successful. It forces me to embrace something that I don't know if I can embrace. You see, the only way we are going to understand love is if we sit before the patiently kind king and invite him to love us. There's no other way. I know we're hardwired to want to do something. But love is never taught, it's experienced. And our Father never intended for us to read a scripture and say, now you know what love is. He intended for the scriptures to whet an appetite that would cause us to engage Him so He could love on us. And so my invitation to us is encounter Him as He reveals Himself. He's patient and kind. And if there's anything going on in our hearts that's driving a different story than that, could I suggest that that needs to be surrendered? And we might need to identify with this Corinthian culture and say, you know what, Lord, we don't believe in Greek mythology, but I may have created some mythology of my own. I've made you into an image that you're not. Your word says something different. I've held beliefs about who you are towards me that's different. You see, John will say we love because he loves us. That there's an ordinal in how it happens. The only way I can love is if I experience his love. Anything else that I would do unfortunately begins to be motivated out of the ought to or the works method or the religion. I want to keep him happy. I want, if I don't do this right, I know he's going to... How many have ever wrestled with God pulling his favor from your life? Be honest. How many have wrestled with that concept? What happens if favor is tied to your unique identity as a son or a daughter? Since when did we come up with the idea that God is like fathers on earth who if they don't like us, they yank the inheritance? When has he ever revealed himself as that God? Because I see a God who, if you study the history of Israel, no matter how many times they fail him, no matter how abhorrent their sin is, he will, he will tell them, here's where you're going, here's what you're going to get out of what you're doing. And the moment that they turn back to him and say, we're sorry, he's all peace, love, and dove with them again. You cannot strip that God out of the Old Testament who is so passionately in love with his children that at every moment that they would turn their hearts back to him because all he's ever been after is the relational encounter. Do I believe church matters? Yes. Do I believe Jesus declared I will build my church? Yes. Do I believe church is the mechanism that God intends to move revival through regions in? Yes. But there's a micro element within this mechanism that has to come into right alignment first, and it's every heart before the Father. Sons and daughters have to be loved by the Father before we can ever connect right as a body. 
how do I know when I'm not walking in love? I find my identity other, other places than him. You see, where I find my identity reveals where I take my greatest value. And my fear for us is that we can read this, love is patient, love is kind, it's not rude, it's not jealous, it's not boastful, and we just go into a mental ascent list about what it looks like to live it out. That's where I land most naturally. But what I would love to do is to experience us and challenge, I would love to challenge us to just experience his love. To maybe say to every one of us, if you struggle with the love of God and the concept of God loving you, Because really that word, patiently kind, deals with an attitude of like. See, it's one thing to say God loves me. How many know in your marriages you say I love you to your spouse a lot? How many understand that saying I like you is a fundamentally different idea? Because if I tell you I love you, that carries with it this idea of I'm committed to you. I nailed my foot to the floor. No matter how ugly you get, no matter how bad you get, no matter how emotionally broken you are, I'm here. And that's a wonderful thing. But to look someone in the eye and say, I genuinely enjoy and like being with you is an absolutely different issue. This idea, patiently kind, carries with it this endearing like of God. Can we understand that God likes us? And I know that feels ridiculously simple to say, God likes me. But what does it look like to begin to live a life from that place? I'm living from a place of rest. He likes me. I'm not living from a place of driven pursuit, hoping he likes me. I'm moving in the gifts of the Spirit because my father likes me and loves doing this with me, not because I'm hoping to accomplish something so he will award me. I love my family around me because he likes me, and I've experienced what it is to be loved, so I know how to give it away. See, the first and fundamental and primary motivation in our lives has to be to be loved, as selfish as it feels, because I cannot give away what I have not received. And some of us have lived most of our lives in a spirit of religion, hoping to appease an almost angry God. And all the while, his invitation to us is, I just want to love you. I want to love you. I want to lavish my love on you. I want to pour it out because I understand that everything you're going to be on the other side of that is beautiful. I want to take bread and cup this morning. I didn't get through my notes. We'll figure it out. I sat down intentionally this morning because this didn't need to be preached. This needed to be shared. The love of God is not a hammer to be beat. It's not a stick to be put upon our head. It's an open hand that says, hey, I really, really want to love you. But you don't, I know. He does understand everything we've ever done. He does understand everything we're going to do. It was his choice to sacrifice his son on our behalf. It was not our choice. We sell short of the purpose and the plan of God in our life if we don't allow the love of God to invade us. I want to take bread and cup this morning. 
Maybe you're here and you say, I have not experienced the love of God ever and I need it really, really bad. We got family members that will be in the back with lanyards on. You have no idea how excited they'd be to lay hands on you and declare supernatural invasion of the love of God. They live for this stuff. But maybe you in your own mind know, I just know, God, I've been dealing with you. And there's memories right now of dad or grandpa or the uncle or the, or the leadership mechanism that taught you how God views you and you need to come to grips with that and say I've assigned to you something that's not who you are whether it's with friendship groups or family units or whether you want to meet with the teams great I want to finish up this morning taking bread and cup and beginning with this simple request Father we ask you to reveal to us your love Holy Spirit, right now, we just simply want the love of God to invade this room. Lord, I think about the old song all day long, it's been in my mind, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless, how strong, that it will forever more endure. We do not understand it, but we only can love after we've experienced your love. And we know that you've called us sons and daughters, and we really are. And John says, what kind of love is this? So we know you love us. We know it mentally. But it seems like there's this mythology that creeps in and we so often want to assign to you something that you're not. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to bring truth this morning. Bring the truth of the love of God into this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take bread and cup. So love never gives up, never loses faith is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever, but prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will all disappear. And now we know only a little, and even the gift of prophecy reveals little, but when the end comes, these special gifts will all disappear. I want you to listen to this with a little bit of word replacement. We know that love is patient and kind, and God is love. Therefore, we can say God is patient and kind, and God is love. So God never gives up. This word means to bear, to cover over. It literally is the idea of not exposing. God never loses faith. I want you to hear these towards you. The word means to remain in trust. What's it say to my heart to realize? God never loses trust in me, regardless of my behavior, regardless of my stupidity, that he never ever loses that belief in who he's called me to be. God has hopes for you. This word means to live in full, fullness of joy and confidence despite circumstance, which means God can look at us in difficult circumstance and yet never give up hope for who he's called us to be, who he's built us to be, who he's created us to be. God remains committed to you. Paul will say, never loses faith, is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. This phrase means to stay, to stay under and to have fortitude and perseverance. It means that no matter how difficult the situation gets, no matter where we go, God stays linked. It's the idea of an arm being lashed to an arm. He stays committed to you. I love this last one where it says love will last forever. I want you to hear this. God lasts forever. We're like, well, I know that. He's eternal. Now we hear what the word means. The word literally means to never quit or leave a post. 
God will never quit in your life. He will never leave his post. Paul shares this with this young Corinthian church to say this one simple phrase. Hey, God is for you. He's not against you. Your father is for you. He's not against you. And if that truth causes anything other than hope and joy to rise in you, it should be an indicator that I just need to go sit in that love some more. My, my challenge this week, my encouragement is, can we sit daily, first thing out of the gate in the morning, and just sit quietly before him and say, we need your love. We need to experience your love. I know I, I might not understand it, but I need to experience it. Paul will say that in, in Colossians. It's beyond your understanding, but you can experience it at a depth and a width. But to just sit and get settled in his love and live our lives from that place. Do ministry from that place. Do work from that place. Do marriage from that place. Do parenting from that place. To be settled with his love first. Holy Spirit, we give all this to you. Lord, it's so hard for me to align with the tender side of you. It's so much easier for the driven side to come through and Lord, this morning, just lay that in front of you and say, we, we, we need you to teach us what it looks like to live in the ridiculous love that you've given, to live into the incredible dreams you have for us. We want to be a people motivated by your love, not by who we think you are. And we honor you today. May your face shine upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. For more great content, please visit us on the web at VintageCityChurch.com.